What's up, everybody? So today we have so much to go over. Uh, deals, markets, um, what's happening in the United States, what we're doing currently um, to position ourselves. We've had, uh, we sold a couple deals. We, uh, I sold a business that I own. We've are trying to buy 150 million worth of assets right now. Um, there is so much going on at the same time. It feels like there's so much uncertainty and the markets are going crazy. So I want to touch in on a lot of these things because as you know, um, investing business, get this is a four dimensional game. This is not a three or a two dimensional game. And we have to, I think one of the problems that a lot of people have when they're starting businesses or investing is putting the right things in the right places. So um, their concerns trump action, or they're hearing certain news and they're putting more importance on that than they should be, and that's dictating action. I know I went through a long, long time of this where I didn't know how to prioritize certain news. I didn't know how to allocate information properly that would actually affect deals, that would actually affect outcomes, what I was doing. So one of the big reasons for this podcast is so you guys have a barometer of what somebody else is doing, that you are getting an inside look. And when you say, because this was a huge deal for me, um, and a lot of people, we use things like Warren Buffett and other information to try to get a compass for all the noise, right? So we're hearing all this noise and you're trying to figure out what should I do with it? How should I prioritize it? How should I contextualize this into my life? And um, it, it's hard. It's so confusing. And so by seeing what other people are doing within the environment, that helped me out tremendously when building my companies and understanding, um, especially when you look at times like the Great Recession, to which I was overwhelmed by, to say the least. Um, we sold insurance. We worked with uh, companies all over, all over our state, all over the country. And I was dealing with C-suite companies that were my clients that paid me to advise them during the recession. Um, I was young and I had to sit down and was talking pros and cons and what I thought we should do and how we should maneuver to either increase options to save money. And I remember just sitting there once and the, the owner of the business looked over at me and he said, AJ, this is great information. I appreciate your work. But he's like, you obviously are not getting our situation. Um, my decision today is, do I cut expenses or do I just go bankrupt? And it was like, he's just staring at me like, you're not understanding. You're not getting this. And I felt, and it was the first time I was like, okay, hey, I may not be quite seeing things, uh, not correctly, but uh, I just didn't have as deep of an understanding being young. And I, that story went on with clients everywhere. So I spent the next 
four years of my career. The first handful of years were good. It was booming. Everybody was making money. And then the following, it flipped on a dime. So my first eight years of business was four up and then four down of the biggest up and the biggest down ever and working with companies through that period. This was a time of, you know, it, it, it was, it, it weighed on me a lot because all I, I was just a fireman for years. We're just putting out fires. Um, I also figured out very much how to leverage those times and experiences to my advantage. It helped me give a value offering to companies and I was able to quickly pivot because I hadn't built a career and I could go to companies and say, all right, I understand now what your concern is. I understand what you're trying to achieve. Here's how I can fulfill this and make this better within this horrible environment. And I was very, very successful doing that. Um, and that was based upon a time where my com competition was relying very heavily on their history and what they'd done. And I learned that your history is great. It matters as far as confidence, but what's important is what you're doing today, your next move. And uh, that trumped everything. And I was able to build a great book of business during times of extreme uncertainty. It was also at that time when I was reading into others and I was so confused a lot on what was going on prior to the recession and after. I actually went back to college to get my MBA, which I had no reason for at all, literally none. There, I, I, like, I didn't get my MBA to say I have an MBA. It had no effect on my income, nothing at all. Literally, I was having discussions with the C-suite and I was trying to understand out, I was trying to figure out better monetary policy and how it was affecting the companies I was working with. So I walked down, was talking to an economics professor and I signed up on the spot just so I could go to school and learn from them. And I walked home and at the time we just had our first child and I was working a lot and I came home and my wife was holding our little girl and I'm like, uh, I'm going back to college. And she was looking at me, kind of stunned. She's like, oh, so you're thinking about going back to college? Why are you thinking this? Where are you? I'm like, uh, sorry, babe, actually, I already uh, was accepted, applied, and signed up. <laughs> so it was, and she's like, oh, no, so you mean you're actually going back to college? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I am. And I just went to talk with the professors and understand. And what I did was I applied the MBA courses just to real world application. And a lot of our teachers, they threw out the book. So they were just like, there's no reason to study economic history because we're living in it. And that was a great resource for me at a time when internet podcasts, that kind of stuff didn't, it wasn't available. So I, the internet was available, but information was not like it is today. Um, social media was just coming around. Um, there were not big information outlets, particularly on useful, digestible economic information. So I didn't have a lot of resources. And so I had to actually go and do all this work and pay this money and to get resources that I feel you get in podcasts today, which is incredible. It's a, it's amazing. And that's, you know, when we went through these times, I had to search so hard to get information to try to become a compass. I went to businesses and 
it was, you know, it was very, very hectic, um, but it was the best learning experience I ever had. Um, and I took those compasses and I made big, big action on them. I bought real estate. I uh, did a lot of things during the recession when everybody else was in able to move. And that's what I hope you guys, we can talk a lot about. And I hope you guys get with our podcast is you're getting that compass. You're seeing our directions, our thought process as things actually change. So you can look at digest and apply with that said, um, sorry, I'm drinking my drink here while I talk. Uh, so I don't get sore throat. Um, but we have had a whirlwind over the last two months, as we all know, obviously I've talked a lot about, um, inflation interest rates. We sold one of our deals, um, and we normally are long-term hold investors, but, um, why we sell. So we sell for two reasons. Fundamentals have gone away or the money that is being offered is just so ridiculous that it doesn't matter. So we will take gains. And we had a property that um, we had bought, I don't know, a year and a half earlier. And they were willing to pay us an amount that we didn't even believe we could probably get to with the property once we were completely done stabilized. You know what I mean? It was like, you're paying us for something that we don't know that we can achieve or yield. And you're also paying us for um, years worth of you know uh, earnings, years worth worth of work. So um, at those times, you take take the money and walk away. It was we could use that money better outside the property than we could in it. And this is something that I talk to a lot of people when they're starting out and saying, should I hold, should I sell? There's two things I want to talk about. Velocity and money when you start out is much more important, especially if you're not getting outside capital. Um, I am able to buy and hold because I can access capital. I access capital through two, re two ways. First, I access capital through our refinance of our properties because of our strategy of finding underperforming properties, turning them around, creating equity, which I can then um, extract tax-free through the refinance and reapply into a new property and compound out those returns. Or we use investors' money to speed up that process because generally speaking, we have a three to four year turnaround process to build and extract yield because we don't want to pull the trigger too early um, and uh, extract that equity through a refinance when we hadn't fully maximized the asset and then we're locking it in and we left a lot of money on the table. So we want to make sure that there's enough time to we can really get the yield out of that property to a point where it's like, okay, hey, we're just on a normal stabilized route and it'll probably be years until we have meaningful upside to where we could do it again. We extract it, pull it out. So in between that time uh, to rotate, turn our money over, uh, we started taking investors because what that allows us to do is keep buying properties even when we haven't refinanced the others. So we get on a track and the idea here is that in the next five years, we will be refining properties every single year at mass and turning over huge, huge amounts of capital year over year over year. And that creates a huge amount of velocity for us and our firm. And that's one of the reasons we took investors. So having investors gets us those two things. 
Um, and we try not to achieve it through selling, even though we will. And if we do, that's fine, right? We'll, we'll take it and go away. Now, in order to offset any taxes, things that we do have, we try to use the refinance to get the bulk of the money tax-free, but then associated with cash flow. Um, and if we sold a property, we get accelerated depreciation on the new properties. So that way we're not paying income taxes um, because uh, we already pay so much in property taxes, which is astronomical. If we paid income taxes as well, when you're a property investor, um, it makes it very hard to even run a business. So we have to be very diligent and efficient about that. So that money that we're turning back over into the business, hiring people, we're buying properties, we're doing it in actual dollar, that we're not doing it 50 cents on the dollar. Um, a very, very important part of scale. Now, as far as timing, what we're buying now, when we buy things, um, this is an important piece. So we do not time markets. We're always buying good deals. We stretch them out and we protect ourselves from short-term turmoil, meaning short-term credit cycles, through structure. And so most people get in trouble in times of uncertainty in two areas. They didn't value properly, so they paid prices they shouldn't have. Um, and the prices that when I say they paid prices they, they shouldn't have, meaning the price was the ba price that w was paid is based upon ex expectations of the past continuing to the future. That is a death sentence because you don't know if the past will continue, and it doesn't. So you need to be able to pay a price that is not paying for future um, numbers that may never come to be. Then the second side is they don't have a structure that allows that investment to go through market cycles. So you all remember my margin of stupidity, okay? This is why I know I can't time markets. What we do is we analyze what's happening within the economy and the market, and we and we move and adjust how we're um, doing business within those environments, and we understand how those environments will reflect and change certain future things, um, but we're not trying to time. Um, and so understanding market cycles, what's going on in the economy is astronomically important. But we talk about prioritizing information and knowing what to do with the information. The problem is when most people start, just like when I got started, I thought that meant that it was telling me if I should buy or not. And that's the problem. We do not look at the market to tell us that. We look at the market conditions and we understand maybe what we should be paying, how we should be buying an individual markets that have better fundamentals than others. So it changes a lot of the application of what we're doing, um, but it doesn't change if we're doing it or not. So the idea is, since we don't know, we are structuring deals so they are open enough to fluctuate through changing times. The most risk that I see on assets and businesses today is that they have very restrictive structures on them that do not allow them 
to adjust for changing times. What does that mean? Let me share that with you real quick. That means that maybe they paid a price and it's interest only for three years and everything will readjust at three years. Well, if you do that and then interest rates are way up, it, that may be fine. You may still be able to pay for the property. But if interest rates are way up and you bought in a third tier market and then the bank is valuing it at a seven cap when you paid a four cap, what you're doing is the because of the interest rates, you're changing the way that we value it. Even if nothing's changed, even if cash flows are the same, it's now worth less than when you bought it. And the bank looks at it and says, okay, we have to have 30% down or whatever that number is. Um, you had that when it was a four cap, right? Um, but now it's worth uh, less, right? We have to readjust how much we uh, want into the property or how much we think your debt to income should be. And they may come and start to readjust the entire loan. They may want you to put more money up, right? There, There's this, what I call triggers and they're valuation triggers, right? And then there's like cash flow or revenue triggers. We try to avoid the triggers. I don't want a huge change at a known date that will trigger a change in my expenses through an interest rate or change how the properties are valued or if I need to sell it. So people bring on investors or partners and then they say, we're gonna sell it at this time and because we think it's gonna be a higher value, we're gonna get all our returns out of it. Well, you've now bet your entire thing and this is how 99% of all private equity funds do it today that we see that it's your your entire return structure is predicated on events that need to take place in a certain time frame that the market doesn't care about. So it may or may not take place. And if it doesn't, your entire strategy now is demolished. Well, that is betting on the market and we bet on ourselves. So what we try to do is make it so those situations don't happen. How? We give ourselves long timeframes, right? I want to have a five to 10 year interest rate, which in that 10 year period of time, I can choose when to adjust the rates, when it's best for me, best for my property. When we're dealing with investors, we hold for the long term. We want to do a refinance to have an equity event, but we don't have to do a refinance within a certain period of time. So once again, we can do it when it's best for the investment and the best conditions are. That allows us to maximize the asset. And if it goes into uh, hard times, we can let it. It doesn't matter, right? We can survive those ups and downs and we can maximize. So the number one risk that I see is not the assets themselves. It's not the asset is going to lose income. It's not the asset is going to lose value. It's that the external things that you're placing on that business or that asset is predicated on something that you didn't even know would happen in the future. And if it doesn't play out exact that exact same way, the asset, air quotation, fails, even though it didn't, right? Even though income didn't change. And a lot of people don't understand this. Many times when you say, oh, they, they lost the property, they went under, it doesn't mean the property failed. In fact, most of the time, I think it just means that the um, structure uh, failed the property. And uh, that's a big distinction that you have to make. So when looking at what's going on right now, we do not believe that the future is cherry. I've been saying this for a long time. So I, we've been talking now, if you listen to this podcast, I don't know, you're probably annoyed with how much I talked about interest rates. Um, I talked about interest rates literally probably twice a month for like a year. And 
I think it actually probably had a lot of people that, you know, felt like I was a broken record, felt that I was beating a dead horse. Um, maybe didn't like, maybe they got old and stopped listening to the, the, the content, but you understand now why, why for the last year and a half prior to huge inflation, why we were talking about it, why we were setting things up for that, that change, everything from huge refinances with our personal properties with, you know, uh, stacking up cash with, um, you know, there's lots of things that we did. We went through a big adjustment period within our firm and everything prior to the spike in interest rates, because we knew it was going to happen. And we knew that if it was going to happen, what would change? Well, there's a scale. And for so long, the scale has been lifted and we've been in a really good market and sellers have had all the power. Higher interest rates makes capital less, and that puts power back in the hands of the buyers, right? And that changes who can buy. That changes the dynamics of the market, which leads to opportunities. So for the next two years, we believe there will be more opportunity than there was in the prior. Now, when we're talking about opportunity and market cycles, let me give you my simple yet very thorough analysis that I think you could just take to the bank. When markets are up, sellers are in power. And so people, uh, deals are more competitive. But on the opposite side, it is easier to do deals. It's easier to execute. Banks will give you money. People will invest in you. So although you feel like deals are hard to find and it may be more expensive, your ability to execute on deals went up dramatically. Now, when the market shift and buyers are in power and sellers are not, um, it's the opposite. Now you have deals that you can actually compete on and there's way more of them. You don't have to work as hard, but your ability to execute has gone way down. Money's a lot tighter. People don't want to maybe give you money. Banks don't want to invest with you. And this is the problem of, that I see a lot of people with timing markets. They expect, well, I'll get better deals in the future. Yeah, but then you can't execute when you get them. So it doesn't matter. So once again, you got to take advantage of what there is to take advantage to in those cycles. There's, it's just, it, it's all it is, is, is it's different struggles and different opportunities and they shift. It goes up and down, up and down. And that will always, always happen. So we have been getting ready for the shift. We were still buying. We would still continue to buy, but we knew that the opportunities and the things that we have um, that are resources and our ability to execute would change based upon market cycles. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're seeing more deals fall under contract than we've ever seen. We're starting to see buyers be way more particular about who they're locking things up or selling to. We're seeing a large shift and we're presenting ourselves. We're changing our marketing strategy and to those take advantage of those things. So let me give you an example. Right now, we're, we're stretching and changing our marketing to say, seller, your biggest fear right now for a seller is the deal falls under contract, that they're not going to be executed because every seller is looking at it saying, geez, in six months, I think my property won't be as worth as much as it is today. So they really care about executing on that price or that uh, executing today. And in fact, that may 
they may not care about the highest price. They have a price that they're willing to go for, and they care way more, way more about somebody that can execute. So we're creating our marketing about our ability to execute, to not fall out of contract, how the seller can be comfortable with us in knowing that when we say we're going to buy it, we're not going to leave them hanging and in a really bad spot. And so we're shifting, right? We're shifting our... Um, offering to the market. We're shifting how we talk to people about how to investors about how we went through the great recession. You know, most of the operators in my space, not only never went through the recession, they didn't even come close to going through the recession. You know, these are people that started investing in 2017. And they went through the greatest four or five years that the market's ever seen. Well, that's a weak spot for them and a strength for us. So we highlight that in a big way, right? Investors, you're right. You may be, they may have to give you a better deal or something like that to get your money, but is it worth giving somebody your money if you don't know that they'll be around or if they can't, if they don't have any experience in the market cycle we're moving into? Whereas we can take full advantage of it. We've been through it. We've survived it. We have a good recession, right? Or we've been through recessions and we capitalize on them. And we show them how our deals have changed to reflect that. And they go, holy cow, no other operators talking about this. We haven't seen this. And it makes perfect sense. And then investors flock to us. So we, we change how we're presenting ourselves to sellers, to investors during market cycles, right? Um, and you have to change with it. So we're moving to an environment, everyone, of a lot more fear. Now, we are also in the middle of culture wars. I really try to not ever get involved in culture war topics because I know fundamentally 50%, no matter what, of my audience will not agree with me on any issue. And it's not the same 50% because I have very fluid views on culture, on politics, which do not necessarily align with an individual party. So I am very issue driven and I do not I, I do not take an emotional stake lots of times in issues and I try to be very logical about them. Um, and so I know I'm always gonna piss off somebody. Uh, e either side. It's just which side am I going to uh, piss off? So I, I don't do party line tag things where I just follow headlines to try to appease to some base. I, I just don't care about appeasing to anybody. Um, with that said, culture wars are real. We cannot just say that they don't exist. And in times like this, culture wars get way, way more heated, as you're seeing. Um, and we can't ignore the fact that they exist because culture wars drive policy and policy drives economics. Um, what we're seeing today is culture wars have been driving for the last three years, our government, which makes me vastly sick. And it makes me, I, I think it's so ridiculous that our politicians are paying way more attention to things that they shouldn't be instead of doing it. With that said, 
only what we want to talk about, what I want to talk about in this is different effects, how things are doing. And one of the things that I've gotten a lot of questions on was the abortions and how that's going to affect uh, migration patterns. So culture wars have had a huge effect on migration patterns in the United States. We see people flocking one state to another due to politics. Most of the people that come here to Idaho, they literally, they literally refer to themselves as political refugees. Um, they're leaving states where they felt that not only did they not have any say, they couldn't even, they, they literally, because of their beliefs, they could not excel. They couldn't get job promotions. They were worried about their children in schools. Um, and so they have to leave to a place and environment that isn't going to combat those views and things like that. That's crazy to me, first of all, but it is also very real. Um, the, the fear of people being canceled, the fear of people getting fired from their jobs because of certain beliefs on issues that they have it is a very real thing. Those trends are not ending anytime soon. Um, the culture wars in the United States are not ending anytime soon. In fact, they're heating up. And I believe very strongly that the culture wars are benefiting some areas and not others. And I expect those trends to continue. They have been playing out very well for the last 10 years, and they will continue to play out. Um, when we look at things like um, the abortion laws that have come in um, and the turnover of Roe versus Wade, um, which I, once again, I try not to really get into this stuff, but I, the questions are, and the thought process is, is this going to affect people moving to conservative locations? So first of all, my opinions, just so we clear this out, I am not totally against abortions and I am not totally for abortions. I think that's ridiculous. I do not believe in certain aspects of that. You should criminalize somebody in terms of hurting the baby, the mother, or, you know, rape, I, I think that those conditions make sense. But then at the same time, I am not somebody that's for abortion. But I don't think either way, I first of all, I don't even think I need to say my opinion. I don't think it really matters. But at the same time, I don't think the law had anything to do with it. And I think um, the Roe versus Wade being overturned was a good thing because democracy won. It has nothing to do with abortions. I, I don't care. I literally don't care about that. I really, really care about the fact that states lose power. And over the last 30 years, the states have lost huge amounts of power. The reason why our democracy, um, which we're not a full democracy, we're a republic, but the reason our republic has survived was because democracy was held at a local level. The United States is massive, everyone. It is so big. And if you live in Idaho versus New York or Texas versus California, you might as well live in other countries. And I do not believe that someone in California should tell someone in Texas what to do, how to live. And I don't believe that someone in Texas should tell someone in California what to do, how to live. Now, some people are like, this is totally gross. This is horrific. And then other people are saying the exact same thing on the other side. You shouldn't force anybody to believe anything for any reason. And we should have the ability for democracy to work on a local level, but democracy on a big level works in civil war. Meaning, if you have a democracy where two states, New York and California, have all the say, all the other states will revolt and turn to violence because you have taken away their democratic rights and ability to vote. I don't want to see that. So for me, I think you should be whatever you want to be, however you want to be in your state. And if 
80% of the people in that state choose to live a certain way. Who am I to say or judge? I don't care. And I want the freedom and ability to move and go and be in a place where my voice has a say in democracy. Now, because we live in a republic and because those things are happening, what that does is that causes migration. So do you see where I'm getting at here? The culture wars will cause shift in migration patterns. They will cause things. Now, the shift that we've been seeing is due to voting and one side way out weighing another side in certain locations. Those people are moving to places where they feel that they can do better, they can thrive, and that they can participate in actual democracy, have their voice be heard, that they are actually somebody, that they won't get told that they're evil, they won't get told you don't have a right to speak. Um, you can't do that to anybody on either side of the aisle. So with that, everybody, when we're looking at culture wars, why I care about it when we're investing, when we're talking about business, is because of the patterns it drives and the economies that will be shaped by them. And that is a big deal that you have to take into consideration. If you don't, you're just ignoring the reality. And that is also very dumb. So I'm trying to be very pragmatic, and I don't care what anyone believes. I just care that they have the opportunity and choice to believe what they want to believe, and they can participate in the de uh, democratic process. And that's what I think matters. So um, other than that, I think that you should just let other people do what they want to do and believe in. And if you live in a place where 85% of the people think a way that you don't, you don't get to force everybody else to do what you want. That is how it's supposed to be. We shape our local communities by the people that live there and have say in it. It's crazy to think that a local community and a local city and state should have to shape their future due to how someone else that doesn't live there or do, has no effect on it, right, says or believes. And in the United States, we are massive. Once again, they're literally like other countries. I, I go to St. Louis and I'm like, you are another country. Like, I mean, yes, we speak the same language. Yes, we have a federal government that oversees all of us. But I've never been to a country in the world where it's so different. At the end of the day, we're like the European Union, um, to a large extent, except we're all one country and we have to respect that. Meaning you have to understand that people have different cultures, different likes. Yes, we speak the same language and yes, we have overarching federal government and army that protects us, but we need to respect the differences. It would be crazy for people in England to tell people in Italy what to do and how to live. And you're like, yeah, it's this, it, that's totally different. You know, well, in the United States, actually, England's way closer to Italy <laughs> than a lot. So they speak different languages. Other than that, um, you know, it's very different. And understanding the differences in the states, why people are moving there, why people are living there and what they're doing, that is how you take advantage of economic growth, economic stagnation, understanding cycles. So we look at it, people, but I don't really care. And so I hope that is understandable and i hope that i can do that intact because i don't judge anyone for the belief sets that they have um i don't care if they're different than mine because people are different they have different backgrounds different lives and two what they're going through in another another place i don't know i don't know what you're dealing with in miami so why should i have a say 
right? I, I just, I fundamentally don't want to. I want people to live and be happy in the way that they want to live and be happy about and dictate the life and the day-to-day that they live in. And I think social media, what it's done is it's gotten us involved in everybody's business. And all of a sudden, you're telling someone in Miami, you live in Idaho, and you're telling someone in Miami how they should live or what they should be like. That's stupid. And just because you see them on a cell phone and you say you're an American and I'm an American and it's we're talking together as if we lived in the same community because we're on social media, we don't. And that's fine. And that's okay. So dealing with culture wars, understand what's going on, why it's going on, how that applies. How are you setting up your business? How do the people that live in that area for your location what do they believe and are you being respectful of it? Are you setting up a business model and marketing in a way that appeals to them, right? And it, it, like you want to do this in a real way and you really want to help out local communities, but do it based upon what they want and their needs. Um, don't try to impose your personal beliefs on them. And that's you know ways that you can thrive. These are all very fluid things we're talking about. And the economy drives social issues, not the other way around. And people don't understand that. So the reason why we had a social revolution and we freed slaves in the United States was due to the Industrial Revolution. It's not because the North was better than the South. The North had access to an ability to get rid of of the need for cheap free labor and they were economically prosper uh, they economically prospered due to the industrial revolution when the south didn't that created very different driving economic things right it created a huge war um, but that's what we see economics drive social issues so social issues come up once we get into big economic issues that's why the world went crazy after 2008 and after it was a long-term debt cycle social upheaval follows economic upheaval that won't change you need to understand that and you need to be able to work and invest in an environment with it so many people the culture wars paralyze them and they say things like the world is headed to hell in a handbasket and it all sucks and there's no reason to even invest because everything's ruined that's ridiculous the United States is not over. It's not even close to being over. In fact, the reason why we are great is because we fight and we fight each other and we do not have to toe and follow the line. I'm so against anyone saying what we should say, believe, or follow because the reason the United States is great is because we can say, believe, and do what we want. And you have to allow everybody to do that. And so I plead with you personally, when you're dealing with investors, other people, let them believe and do what they want and be respectful of it. And that's the only way that, you know, a lot of these issues will get resolved. It was much easier when we didn't have cell phones and you couldn't see what somebody else was doing in Texas and you lived in Southern California and all of a sudden you wanted to be opinionated on the person that lives in Texas. Like, you didn't because you were just within your community, at your school, at your thing. You didn't have access to the people living their lives in another place. So you let them be. Let them be. Knock it off. And you invest and build the communities. You be producers and serve people, not serving them to change them, serving them to help them in the circumstances in which they live and believe and exist. 
Um, and that is a huge motto for me. I believe financial freedom is the greatest form of freedom because it allows people to make up their own minds. If I can give somebody financial freedom, even if they don't believe the same way that I believe, I've given them the freedom to make choice, to follow their passions, to live the life that they want to live. Even if I don't agree with it, it doesn't matter. That's why it's the purest form of freedom. Forcing someone to do something by legislature is not freedom. That's taking away freedom, right? Giving them financial freedom and giving them the actual ability to move, to choose, to believe what they want is the purest form of freedom. There's no strings attached. You live your life the way you want. And I love that. All right. This was kind of a rant, but it was an important one. And I hope it was uh, understanding and I hope it came off in a good light. Um, guys, if this, if you did like this, if this made sense to you, please share it on social media, tag me. I really want to see how this one went down. It's been a couple weeks in the making. I've been thinking about, uh, you know, how we should launch that. Um, with that, I have a lot of stuff to go on, but that'll have to be another day. So thank you guys so much. Please share this on social media, tag me, let me know your thoughts. Thanks everybody.